Well, good morning, and it's a delight to be with you this morning. Our passage that we're going to be looking at uh, comes from Colossians chapter 1. So, and it's in your bulletin right there. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. Or verses 13 through 23. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. As David mentioned, my name is Jeff Blanco, or para otros que no me conocen, yo soy Jeff El Blanco, or sometimes at EPCC or UTEP or uh, College for uh, Youth for Christ that I do, I get known as Ewero. So um, this is me. I am the assistant pastor at Las Sierras, uh, sometimes known as the assistant to the pastor, pastor. And um, both Manuel, or Tito as people call him, we both had our birthdays this week, and I made fun of him by saying that I am almost half as old as him. So, he is a little bit older. Um, my wife and I have been married for over six years. We have two kids, two and under. Our daughter is Poppy Marie. She's two years old and crazy, spicy little child. And our son, Hebron, is eight months old, and he's like the Pillsbury Doughboy, big, chunky child. And that's him over there right now. Um, One of the things that I have been able to do um, as the assistant pastor at Las Tierras is do a lot of campus ministry outreach through the blessing of being involved with InterVarsity. I also do ministry with Youth for Christ, which is a local high school ministry. And it has been a great blessing and encouragement. We've seen fruit through these Bible studies. People come to faith. And it has been um, a really, really great encouragement. And to that end, uh, one of the things that that has been upon our heart, uh, my wife and I and, and Manuel at Las Tierras, is the idea of starting an RUF campus ministry at UTEP. And so we've been in the discussion with, with RUF, and, uh, and we've talked with Chuck and some others, 
And we really believe that this is perhaps one of the most strategic mission endeavors that we can do for the PCA and for our city, for the gospel here in El Paso. Um, RUF's emphasis is particularly on training up young local leaders for God's church to be leaders in the church. And they, they really strive to do that very well. But then as you also think about UTEP and EPCC, there are 25,000 students at UTEP now. And there's about 30,000 students at EPCC. And if you combine them, that's over 55,000 students. And together there's maybe five or six campus ministries total. Um, and so there is a great need to communicate the gospel one-on-one through Bible studies, through small groups, through all kinds of things. And we have seen through the work of InterVarsity that I've been involved with and others that there is a receptivity and an openness to the gospel. And so pray for us. Um, this is going to be a big adventure, uh, a big venture for Las Tierras and Christ the King together and for my family personally as we trust the Lord and we take steps out to see this happen, to see an RUF started at UTEP come 2019. So that is, is something that we can do is, is pray for that. But let me pray as we get into this scripture now for us. Lord, we come because you, Christ, are King. You reign seated above and you have sent us your Holy Spirit to illuminate our understanding in our minds and our hearts to understand your word. May we see you more brightly, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So one of the things I do is uh, I've done help plant uh, Bible studies at a couple of the campuses of El Paso Community College. And what we would do is uh, go hand out uh, flyers for some of the Bible studies. Went to Northwest Campus, to a couple other campuses, and we just hand out flyers. So that was good. One of the things we would also do is uh, we would do these things called spiritual surveys. And in these spiritual surveys, one of the questions we would ask people is, who is Jesus to you? I mean, normally we would go up and we would introduce ourselves, say, my name is Jeff, and then we would do a couple questions. And one of the questions was, who is Jesus to you? And one of the questions that the answers that constantly I actually got, which was really encouraging, was people would say, well, Jesus is my Savior. I said, that is a good answer. That's the right, that's great. And then I would start asking a few people later, um, well, how is Jesus your Savior? What makes him your Savior? Here I'm asking him, people, the question, what, what is he? What is particularly about Jesus that makes him your Savior? And it was interesting. A few people would say, well, Jesus is my Savior because he shows me how to live my life to the fullest. Or a couple other people would say, well, Jesus is my Savior because his teachings show me how to live life. And when, I, when they said that kind of thing, I was like, oh man, let's take that back, let's take that back, start over again. Uh, you're right, he is your Savior. But those reasons, that is, he's, if you see him as a teacher or as an example to follow, that is not why he is our Savior. You see, our mental picture of Christ matters. To truly understand that Jesus is, in fact, our Savior, you need a clear mental picture of Him that is truly good news. If you think that Jesus is your Savior because He is a teacher, 
You will grow disheartened because you will fail his class. If you think that he is your savior because he is a good example, you will grow bitter at him because he will make you look really bad. Because you don't follow his example the way that we should. But Christ gives us, the scriptures give us a picture of what Jesus is, who he is, that we should imagine him in our mental picture, what he is like right now, so that he is our savior. And the scriptures right here tell us that he is in fact a king. And at Christ the King, I'm hoping that many of you actually think of Jesus as Christ the King and that this is how he is our Savior. So you look at verse 13 and 14. We have this picture. It says that God the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see, these verses right say, here are saying that Christ is in fact the king over a kingdom. And that in Christ, in this king who has a kingdom, in him is redemption, that is, the forgiveness of sins. This phrase, redemption, the forgiveness of sins, is what's called an appositional phrase. It's this thing where it's restating the same idea or a similar idea that describes the subject. So, redemption, forgiveness of sins. These are things that describe Christ the King. Christ is the King who forgives your sins. This is being described in the same way from the terms redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see, what we see here, one thing, is already from the nature of redemption that redemption has a deeply personal focus. It is for the forgiveness of sins. He is a king who forgives our sins. And this is important for us to remember because the scripture here also tells us who we are. That in verse 13, the issue is that we were at one point under the domain of darkness. So we see described who Jesus is. He is the king who redeems, who forgives sins. But we also see a picture of who people are, who we are before Christ, which is that we are in the domain of darkness. Now, imagine if you walked around El Paso and you're talking to people, let's say you're sitting down for somebody at Starbucks and you're trying to talk to them and figure out who they are. And you say, so what kind of person are you? How do you see yourself? I guarantee you that nobody you ever talk to will say, I am under the domain of darkness. Because if they did, you would know that they would probably be a curandera, some kind of witch doctor, or a Satanist, and you would probably want to run the other direction. Nobody says or sees themselves as being under the domain of darkness. See, we oftentimes think of ourselves, and the world thinks of themselves as generally good people. A kind person is the kind of way, description that somebody would describe themselves. I'm a kind person. I'm a good person. That's one of a, what kind of a person I am. And that may be very true. And yet lots of good and kind people are under the domain of darkness according to the Scriptures. Because you look at verse 21, it, it, it describes further it. It says, 
that you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. This was the idea. The biblical depiction of our natural condition, as you know, is one of hostility to God in mind and heart and in our deeds. This is what it means to be in the domain of darkness. This is not saying, as we know, that humans going around only doing bad things for society. Humans made in God's image, we know, are capable of doing lots of really good things. Also, we know that naturally some people have, you know, a really kind personality like a Labrador Retriever, just kind with everybody. And other people are born with the personality of a Chihuahua, which is just angry and ferocious with everybody you meet. We know, it's not talking about that, our personalities. Rather, alienation from God and hostile to Him in our mind and affections is that we may even do many good deeds, but even these good deeds are evil in God's sight. It's like if you're a husband and you're, one of your jobs is to take out the trash or to change the diapers sometimes. And you were to come afterwards, say, you know, sit on the, on the couch watching a baseball game and saying, Dear, can you please bring me a beer from the refrigerator? I did take the garbage out and I did do the diapers. Now, if you're a wife, how do those deeds sound to you? Are they good, are they good deeds in your sight? No, clearly not. You see, one of the things is that evil, good deeds can be evil deeds in God's sight because we use them as collateral to try and gain control over God. That we are, in fact, born rebels trying to be kings ourselves and that we are willing slaves under the domain of darkness. This is what it means, that we want to be kings ourselves. There's a rapper, uh, a Jewish reggae rapper named Matis Yahu, so go figure that. It's an interesting combination. And uh, he sings this song called King Without a Crown, and I'm not going to rap it for you, but there is this line in this song that says, King Without a Crown. And he says, you're a slave to yourself and you don't even know. And this is true. That humanity, we think that we are the kings, but we do not have a crown. That we are oftentimes slaves to ourselves, but we do not even know it. This is to be in the domain of darkness, thinking ourselves kings, but we are in fact slaves. And this is why we must understand who Christ is. The picture of Him in our mind when we think about Him as our Savior. He has to be, therefore, the King who forgives our sins. Verse 21 and 22 says this, that you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds... He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. You see, that is the Gospel right there. That Christ reconciled us while we were enemies with Him. While we thought that we were kings of our own lives, but slaves. Because in His body of flesh, what did He do? He took upon Himself a crown of thorns. And the King died upon the cross. But we know that three days later He rose up from the grave and He defeated Satan and sin and death and the domain of darkness and He is seated right now in heaven where He presents us who are His blameless before God. This is the Gospel 
for us. And this is why it says in verse 13 that God the Father is able to transfer us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. This is the good news that the King, in fact, He, the King, grants us pardon who were His rebels and were His enemies. And He does so at His own expense. And when people understand this, this becomes good Great, joyful, liberating news to our souls. When you come from thinking that Jesus is your Savior because He provides an example, or from, te- from being a teacher, to understanding that He is the King who saves you. This makes so much difference in your life. A year and a half ago, I was handing out flyers at the Northwest Campus of EPCC for Bible studies. And this one girl started coming our Bible studies, and she was paying really close attention, really attentive to what we were talking about. And so one time I asked her to meet me for coffee, and so we're sitting down for coffee, and she starts to tell me her story, how she grew up in the Catholic Church, but then she uh, went to the Mormon, to Mormonism, and then eventually later she decided that she wanted to go back to church and ended up going to one of the really large prosperity gospel churches in town. And I could as we're sitting having coffee, I could just see this burden on her. This burden about wondering if God was actually pleased with her. And so I asked her, what do you think the gospel is? What's the gospel? And she said, well, it's Jesus. So that's, that's a good answer. And then she continued and she said, well... The gospel is Jesus that he shows us how to live. And he gave us his teaching. And I said, this is more what the gospel is. The gospel is that Jesus is God's one and perfect son and he is the rightful king of the world and yet he died for all of those sins that you have done and the guilty fears that you have now. And that if you trust in Him, God the Father loves you as fully as He loves His own Son, Jesus. That He forgives all of your sins and that He is as pleased as you as He is with Jesus. And when I told that to her, tears started streaming down her face. And she said, I've always been wanting to know and wondering, God, are you pleased with me? And now I know how that can be true. And now she's a, a believer and a member of a, a Bible-believing church and is actively involved in it. You see, when you understand who Christ is, that He is the King who saves you, that He's not just a teacher or an example to follow, this is great news that liberates us. And it is deeply personal. And it is deeply good news. As J.I. Packer said about this, that Christ the King is our Redeemer. He says, we are loved just as fully as Jesus Himself is loved. And it is like a fairy tale. The reigning monarch adopts waifs and strays to make princes of them. But praise God, it is not a fairy tale. It is hard and solid fact founded on the bedrock of free and sovereign grace. 
that we are loved just as fully as Jesus is loved, that the king makes us his brothers and sisters. That is our good news. That is our redemption. And sometimes it can seem too good to be true. How can Jesus personally forgive all of my sins? And how can He forgive the sins of millions of people all over the world? How could He actually do such a thing? And so verses 15-23 through 23 are in a way providing the answer to that question of how Jesus is actually sufficient to forgive all of our sins. And the answer is that Jesus... Christ the King is able to forgive your sins because He is God. This is why He can forgive our sins. Verse 15 says that He is the image of the invisible God. That is, Jesus is God made visible. God made flesh. That He is God in His very essence. Verse 19, if you look further down, explains, elaborates more on that in saying that in Him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In this person, Christ, fully dwells God. His essence, in His essence, He is God is what He's saying. But also, verses 16 and 7 speak of His authority over creation. That He created all things. That He holds all of these things together. All the molecules of our bodies. The entire universe. He holds it together. That Jesus is God because He holds authority. He has authority over creation. There's this book, kids book, called The Storm That Stopped. And we read it with our daughter sometimes. And it's about the story of how Jesus and the disciples are crossing the Sea of Galilee. And you know how the story goes. Jesus is exhausted after teaching. And so he falls asleep in the boat. And the water starts, you know, coming into the boat. And it's a huge, ginormous storm, as the the Scriptures tell us. And it's a huge, ginormous storm. And the disciples see that Jesus is asleep. And they say, Jesus, don't you care about us? And he wakes up. And what does it say that he does? He looks at the storm, he rebukes the wind, and he says to the sea, Peace, be still. And it stops. And now the disciples are really terrified, if you see the story. They're absolutely terrified now. And what is the question that they ask? Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And it is a question that is meant to be asked. It's the question, who is it? Who could that be? And the kids' book, The Storm That Stopped, goes on and says, well, the Bible says that God created everything. God created the stars. God created the earth, the sea, and everything. And only God can tell the wind and the sea to stop. But Jesus is doing what God is doing. So, who is Jesus? My my two-year-old can answer that question. Jesus is God. And this is the very point of this passage right here. It is saying that Jesus is God in His very nature and in His kingship, that is, His authority over the creation. This is what it's saying. Some people uh, get a little bit confused at this point, though, where 
It says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. For example, there are uh, Jehovah's Witnesses who come to my door sometimes, and they will point out this passage. See, he's the firstborn of creation, which means that he is a created being and not God. Well, I told this lady one time who came to my house that there are two reasons why that's not true. And uh, she actually started yelling at me in my own house about why I was wrong, uh, which isn't a very good way to evangelize somebody in their own house, to yell at them. But there are two reasons why it cannot mean here that Jesus was a created being and not God. First, you, think, you look at the term firstborn of creation, it's connected with the synonym, uh, the image of the invisible God. That is a clear reference to his deity. These are connected by what they're saying. So in the context, right there, it's, saying, it's not saying that he is a created being. Secondly, it's a, in the Bible, this is a term of authority. Psalm 89 says, I will make him the firstborn. That is the highest of kings on earth. It's a title saying this is the one who is the king and ruler over creation. Firstborn is simply a title referring to authority, rule, kingship. For example, I am the firstborn of my grandfather and I have a bunch of uh, cousins. Uh, there's 15, 16 of us. And when, you know, when I go this summer vacation with a couple of them and when I say to them, cousins, brothers and sisters, I am the firstborn. I'm not saying the fact that I am obviously the, the oldest one. The point of saying I am the firstborn is to say, I have authority. You need to listen to me. That's what it's saying. And this is what the title means. So the point is, it is connected in the context. To say, again, this is a title of his authority, his kingship over the creation. This is what the scripture is getting at that he is the beginning, the firstborn, that in everything he might be preeminent, that is, have authority. Okay, so what? Why have Christians, Roman Catholic, Protestant, Eastern Orthodox, made such a big deal about this being the deity of Christ, how Christ is God? Why do we make such a big deal about it when people come to our door and, and sometimes start yelling at us for disagreeing? How do we still say this is so important? And it is because the very fact that he is God, this is why he is able and has the authority to forgive all of your sins, as big as they appear in your life. Because he is God, he can forgive our sins. This is what Mark 2 in the Gospels is getting at. You know, when Jesus is teaching in Capernaum, and he's in a house, and there's no room. And so a bunch of friends have this guy that, they, they, uh, that is a paralytic, and they want him to get healed. And so what do they do? They take the roof off of the house, and they drop him into the house in the front of Jesus while he's teaching, which is very interesting and distracting as a teacher, if that were to happen. And they put him there, and you know what he says to the paralytic. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, if I were the friends and that guy, I would say, okay, that's great, but that's not what I came for. Um, sure. But then there are some Bible teachers who are right there, and they understand exactly what Jesus is doing. 
they know what the scriptures say, and they start to get raging in their hearts. And they say, why does he speak like that? Who does this man think that he is? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus then asks the question rhetorically, knowing what's going on in their hearts, and he says, what's easier for me to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or rise up and walk? Now, side note, both are humanly impossible. But one is just a lot more obviously impossible. I mean, you stand there and you say, walk, rise up and walk. It's obvious when that doesn't happen, if it's the case. But Jesus says, get up and walk. And the man gets up. And it is proof that he has authority to heal and that he has authority to forgive. And so Jesus says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. This is what the Gospels are telling us. That Jesus is God. That this is why He has come with authority to forgive our sins. As the Heidelberg Catechism says in question 17, and Heidelberg Catechism is one of man's best friends and I will probably name our next dog Heidelberg for that very reason because I love the Heidelberg Catechism. And it's very helpful on this point. It says, why must our Redeemer, why must He be truly God? The answer is, so that by the power of His divinity, He might bear the weight of God's anger in His humanity and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. That is, by the power of His divinity, He can bear the weight of God's sin. This is why He has authority as the King to forgive our sins and the sins of many in the world, as big and great as they appear to you and to me. And so we see that He is completely sufficient for our forgiveness. So my question is, do you see Jesus as your God and King? Because the way you think of Him is critical to how you will understand your forgiveness in this life. There's this movie uh, with Will Ferrell that's a famous movie uh, where he is a race car driver named Ricky Bobby. And there's this famous scene in this movie where they're all sitting around a table eating, ready to pray for dinner. And one of the guys starts saying, I like to think of Jesus. When I think of Him, I like to picture Him as a tuxedo wearing a tuxedo t-shirt because it says I want to be formal, but I'm here to party. And then Will Ferrell says, I like to think of Christmas Jesus the best. And he prays and he says, Dear tiny infant Jesus. And you know the point there is that the whole thing is absolutely absurd and irreverent, showing that because this is the way they think of Jesus, obviously he has nothing to do with their life. You see, if you think of Jesus as a tuxedo t-shirt wearing guy or just as a tiny baby, he will have no impact in your life whatsoever. I grew up in Guatemala and uh, every Easter we would go to this really big Easter parade showing the stations of the cross. These big floats showing the cross. And as people would go down, it was really, really quite incredible. And... uh, There'd be these different ones showing Jesus carrying his cross with excruciating pain or him upon the cross 
or even the tomb. And it was showing the seriousness of his death. Sometimes then we would go into cathedrals and I would stand in the middle of them. In any direction you would look around, you could see Jesus carrying his cross with his thorns. Or Jesus on the cross, bloodied and bruised. Or Jesus in a glass coffin somewhere. But here's the thing. If this is the primary way that we see Jesus when we go places, if this is the primary way that you understand him, you will mostly feel pity for him as a helpless man. Maybe a little bit of guilt. But if this is the Jesus that is most in your mind, you will not look to him for help with your sins because he is weak in that situation. And this is one reason people go to others to look for help who are much more compassionate and caring and an advocate. But this is not the picture of who Jesus is right now for us. The scriptures have not left us with a tuxedo t-shirt wearing Jesus or baby Jesus, as irreverent as that is talked about, nor is he left to us as the dead and dying Jesus who cannot help us. It sets before you here in this passage that Jesus is God and King alone with power and authority to forgive your sins. And so he can help us. And so the point is to run to the King Jesus because He is the one who is our advocate, who can wipe away all those sins that we are aware of in our life. And we see how deeply personal that Christ is our King and our Redeemer is. Now briefly, I want us to think, look about the scope that Christ is also a King whose redemption is cosmic in scope. You see, it is deeply personal, but His redemption is also cosmic. You see, follow Paul's logic, is that if Jesus redeems us personally from our sin, because He is God, and He has authority over creation, so He will also one day restore all of the physical and material universe. Verses 19 and 20, look at it. He says, For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He is God. And through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. This is the restoration of the material and physical world. As He says later elsewhere in Romans, that the creation itself waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That it waits in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption, to death and decay. And that it will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You see, the picture here, even in this passage, is that creation is eagerly waiting to be redeemed from death and decay. And that one day it will happen. All of creation. Because Christ is the King over creation. Sometimes we forget this, that Jesus claims all of creation as his own. You may know the movie Nacho Libre. And in this movie, uh, there's a priest who who is the cook. And he's supposed to go bring chips back to the monastery. But the chips get stolen by a bum. And he he goes back to the monastery. And the, the head of the monastery says, Did you not tell him that they were the Lord's chips? 
See, sometimes we think that there are some chips that are the large chips and there are some chips that are everybody else's chips. But plain and simply, the, the Lord Jesus is king over all of creation and so all of the chips are the Lord, Lord's chips. To put it more theologically, Abraham Kuyper said it this way, that there is not a square inch in the whole realm of creation, in the whole domain of our existence in which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And so he will restore all things one day. One true implication of this in our life is that this should give us a tenacious perseverance in our life. Many of you have seen great carnage from war and things like those things. We have seen the devastation of... uh, of illness to loved ones' bodies and minds from dementia and MS and cancer and all these horrible things. We've seen that devastation. Some of us deal with hostile work environments. Yet we hold on with a tenacious perseverance. We sing that great Christmas hymn that says, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive its King. No more let sin and sorrow reign, nor thorns infest the ground. He makes His blessings flow far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. Far as, far as the curse is found. So we should have a tenacious perseverance in this bodily life that we live, in this broken, fallen world, because Christ is going to redeem the King is to come. And so I would urge you, continue in the faith, stable and steadfast as Paul urges you. Do not shift from the hope of the Gospel that this King Jesus, His redemption will be cosmic and it is deeply personal for you, for our forgiveness of sins. Do not shift from it. Continue in the faith, steadfast and stable. Because Jesus is sufficient personally and for all of creation. Last year I was at a, one of my mentor's birthday parties in Boston where I went to seminary at Gordon-Conwell. And a buddy of mine and I wanted to walk around Harvard, so we went to uh, Harvard Divinity School, which was one of our counterparts. And we're walking around Harvard Divinity School. And when uh, we're walking there, um, we're walking around the Divinity School and we're walking past this big event. It's this alumni event for the 200th anniversary of Harvard Divinity School. And as we're walking by, this lady stops us and says, um, here are your badges. Here is a little bo- uh, thing for you to wear. Uh, here's your, your folders and everything. Enjoy the alumni event. Before we got to say anything, we're all of a sudden Gordon Conwell grads at this Harvard Divinity School alumni event. And uh, they had great food and all this stuff, so we're just enjoying the whole thing. And eventually this guy comes up to us and says, hey, I'm uh, so-and-so, class of 78. Well, at that point we realized the gig was up. And we said, well, we're actually from Gordon-Conwell. And when I said that, he said, oh. (laughs) You're the ones, basically, that believe the Bible and believe all this stuff about the redemption and... uh, you know, resurrection and all this stuff. He said, well, I wrote a book about heaven. 
And basically, what heaven is, heaven is that when you die, and the synapses in your brain stop working, it's an experience like nirvana. That's what he said. And that is in some ways so easy to believe. It's so easy to believe. But at the end of the day, if this is just a sensation of our brains dying, it is so personally unsatisfying. And it doesn't deal with our sin problem. And it means that all the pain in the world and all the pain in our bodies is utterly vain. You see, Michael Williams said, believing in something spiritual is easy. Very few people actually refuse to believe in a deity of some sort. But believing that God acted in Jesus Christ, raising Him from the dead, and that His resurrection is God's absolute promise that He will be victorious over sin and death and will reclaim His fallen creation in glory of the coming King. Now that is faith. It does take faith. So continue in the faith. Continue stable and steadfast because your faith is in the risen King who is the King of redemption. And it is deeply personal. And it is profoundly cosmic. So let us pray. Lord, it can seem to be too good to be true sometimes. That You would restore us personally that You love us as You love Your Son, Jesus, forgiving our sins, but that You also care about our bodies and our world and You will restore the creation. So Lord, Lord Jesus, risen King, strengthen us. Lift up our, our eyes of our hearts to You so that we may see You, Lord Jesus, with the eyes of faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.